Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge. And we're here with another week of law and order, law and disorder, UFOs, indictments, conspiracies, and that's just the first five minutes. Mark, <laughs> how are you doing this week? Hey, you know, I'm just happy to be here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be with you here. Uh it's getting. I wonder if anybody has made this their Friday night ritual to tune in and hear what we have to say. I mean, what is this? Our, our third week? Oh, I think we're at the very least catching people on their way home from work on Fridays or we're catching them out to whatever activities they may have on a Friday night. Um, you know, a lot of people listen to their, their talk station during the week and uh, it's just the, the car still on that station when they hop back in. Well, that's right. Well, on the West Coast, I'm an East Coast person. So on the West Coast, it's drive time. Okay. That's People true. heading home. So they're, they're, they've probably already got us on a routine. We give them that sense of security and, <laughs> and knowledge and get them ready for the weekend with disturbing stories. <laughs> that's right. But here on the East Coast, uh, and of course around the world, but on the East Coast, it's 7 p.m. and... Under normal situations, people will be looking for a relaxation uh, after a hard week of work. Uh, and instead, they've probably decided that, oh, we just have to stay home and, and listen to this on whatever we stream our audio on. That's how I see it. That's what I'm telling myself every every week, though. Yeah, that's the, the live show. But don't forget that many people listen. Um, some stations will, rec- will play us a uh, delayed broadcast. And then we have, uh, you know, a quarter million downloads per week of the podcast of which we're part of. And so people are listening in a variety of ways. Right, because we will do it on demand over and over again for you. <laughs> right, just keep playing the same show. You, you can just be like the three-year-old. That says, again, again, and we will do it just like a devoted parent until we smack you on the butt. <laughs> the, uh, it, well, you know, that's, it, it, it's, it's good that kids do that because they learn. Um, you know, repetition, uh, you know, makes people learn. And, uh, but I think with a radio program, I'd rather just listen to the new one. Well, you know who's a devoted parent is Joe Biden, and at least. I'm going to say that today <laughs> because in the news this week, we, we have, we have what some people might consider big news and, and almost historical news in one case, because former president Trump, he hit the trifecta of indictments yep. this week. I mean, and this was the big one. This was the conspiracy to overthrow the government. I'm, I'm shorthanding that I've got the details. We'll explain what the three counts are or four counts are in that indictment. But Hunter Biden associate, Devin Archer. Is it Devon or Devin? Do you know? I, it's spelled like Devon, but I thought I heard people call, saying it Devin in the news. But anyway. I'd go with Devin. Uh, okay, we'll go with that. I, I probably, you know, you really shouldn't, uh, I, I shouldn't uh, advertise my ignorance. <laughs> I pronounced it with authority and let other people think they, they were wrong if it didn't agree with how they hear it in their minds. We're, we're certainly not going to have them on an ask. Uh, well, not, not tonight. <laughs> he, may, he may be making the rounds before long. Anyway, uh, 
House Oversight Committee investigates UFOs. That was a global story uh, for the past several days and that started last week, but it's been continuing. And we have a special guest, Dennis Mitch Maley, to help us with that. CDC detects coronavirus, HIV, hepatitis, and herpes at an unlicensed California lab. And we'll save the details for later. But just imagine, yeah, have you... You've ever rented a storage area? The storage places are all over this part of Florida, and I know it's a national thing. The, the storage companies are are, are big uh, stock performers. They're, they're they're very investable, and a lot of people have put their money into uh, storage companies. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you think about what it costs per square foot for your house. I mean, home prices keep going up yeah. and up. And I presume that uh, the, the rent on storage units keeps going up, 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 too. Yeah, and it's but, still a lot less. But, uh, you know, I had a friend, and he would go, and I imagine they still do stuff like this. When when someone disappears, yep. and, you you know, they, the owner of the storage facility can't find them, what do they have left to do except... Sell it. You know, where are they going to put the stuff? Well, they got a place to put the stuff. But they need to empty, to empty the stuff to put other people's stuff in the, in the place right. to put the stuff. So they auction off the whatever is in the, the storage spaces. And, you know, they can throw the sliding door up and people can look around. But they're usually packed, you know, to the gills. And the, the potential bidders... You know, they can sort of poke their head in, but it's it's basically a crapshoot. And yeah. you just, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe it opens up and you see a, a a car or something and they know that, well, that's got value. Or sometimes you may just be hoping you're find, going to find that amazing Fantasy 15 with the, the U.S. Spider-Man in one of the boxes, which probably doesn't happen very often, but there's always that hope. So he would go around and he would make these bids and, of course, lowballed everything. Can you imagine you finally get in it, you go to take possession, and you know you're you're expecting to find old photos of grandma and maybe some uh, records or uh, different things that might have some value, and you get vials, thousands of vials of coronavirus and HIV, and you know the average person would probably, if it's not labeled, because a lot of them were unlabeled. Would open them up. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. What, what what's in here? Perfume. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we'll we'll explore that. That's probably going to come much later in the show because we really we have important things to talk about. Uh, any, anything else happening in your week, Mark? Well, I see that Vince McMahon, the, the uh, WWE guy, uh, he has been indicted. Or not indicted. He's uh, been investigated. Oh, I got to go story. He's got legal problems. How's well, that? He's buddies with Trump, so this pro- they're both very competitive. So he, because he uh, Vince McMahon was indicted uh, decades ago. Uh, I, I don't have the details in front of me, but it was basically around the steroid era of the WWE. Mm. And he, I'm sure they don't do that now. He stepped away from management of the company at that time, and he got through that, and he's. Of course, he came back and he just had the the merger between WWE and UFC and um, looked to be on top of the world. And, you know, just when you think that you're on top of everything, something like this happens. Right. Have you seen Vince McMahon since he's redone his look? 
I don't know whether I've seen him. Uh, like, there's a picture in the article, uh, but it doesn't have a date on the picture. And, okay. and he is well, with. Well, let, let me describe how he looks today, and you can tell me if that was the picture you saw. Do you remember Dudley Do Right cartoon and the villain Snidely Whiplash? Yeah. Okay. And Snidely Whiplash was. Top, hash, top hat, yeah. big handlebar mustache. Yeah, every old uh, silent movie villain. Vince yeah. McMahon is like 70 something. Yeah, and and it's not the early seventies. It's getting in the mid seventies at least. Mm-hmm. And the last time I had seen him before the merger was before he stepped away over the sexual—I uh, don't know—it was considered sexual harassment, but let's say sexual misconduct with with uh, employees that were not. It wasn't something that the CEO of a publicly traded company wants to be linked with. Not saying they don't do it, but they they like to sort of have a have a hands off posture on those kind of things, literally. And mm-hmm. he he. But before that, last time he was uh, on camera for the WWE audience, I th- I think he wrestled at uh, two WrestleManias ago, and even for a seventy year old man, he was jacked up, uh, not yeah. move like he used to. But he wore the, the black tank top like he had the habit of, and big chest, big biceps, thinning hair. Had um, not the face of an old man, but you know he was showing his age. Well, as, so he disappears, and he steps away from the company. Oh, I'm you know we're the the board of directors that suggested I leave because of the the problems that we're having over these claims about the the sexual relationships, and I'm not coming back. Well, that was until he got the offer. I don't know how many billions it was worth to merge with the UFC. And he makes his appearance on CNBC. So I'm looking ready to see the old Vince McMahon and where he had had some graying hair. Yeah. He kind of had a salt and pepper look going. Shoe polished black hair. Like you just took axle grease or something and just rubbed rubbed it through your hair. And then a super... Pencil-thin mustache. If I knew we were going to talk about this, I'd have the Jimmy Buffett uh, chorus of the song Pencil-Thin Mustache. Uh, <laughs> but. I'm looking at pictures of him, and he must have had some kind of surgery, plastic surgery or something, because he just simply doesn't look like him anymore. He doesn't look like Vince McMahon with a pencil-thin mustache and uh, you know dyed hair. He looks like somebody else. He looks like he's ready to tie somebody to the railroad tracks. And you, you'd have to have the cultural reference to the, the, know those old... Uh, I think everybody's seen movie it, tropes. Yeah. Yes. Or Dudley Do-Right tropes. Whichever. But you know, I, I guess... Uh, who knows what we will look like when we're right. that age. Uh, you certainly find out gonna... for me sooner than for you. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> You're a little ways ahead of me. Yeah, everybody well, tries to, to to recapture their their youth in different ways, and uh, you know what does what does politics do to your youthful attitudes and stuff? Well, well, there's a congresswoman, Nancy Mace from South Carolina. This, I, I've been dying to play this audio uh, all all week. Yep, since I first heard it. Now, Tim Scott is the Republican. Uh, in the Republican primary field for the next presidential nomination. 
He's a black senator. I don't. He may be the only black Republican senator in the Senate, and comes from. Well, there's only there's only a hundred senators, and a uh, few of them are black, and uh, probably about half of them are Republicans. So I would agree that the chances of there being a second black right. Republican senator. He, he what, did fill a, a vacancy, I believe, originally, but he has been reelected. So the people of South Carolina are on board with him now, and. Uh, Nancy Bay Mace is a uh, very attractive Republican congresswoman. I, I hope it's not sexist to to compliment someone like that, but I, I'm, I'm at It's not on this day. show. Yeah. <laughs> She's uh, 45 years old, divorcee. Uh, I imagine uh, relatively couple, she has children, but they probably are in their teenage years or maybe fully grown, just considering the age. And she's currently engaged. And she was doing some opening comments at Tim Scott's prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. And, you know, if you're a successful uh, politician in Washington, D.C., it's especially on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, too, depending on your constituency, uh, a prayer breakfast uh, gets you back in touch with your roots and your values and lets everybody see those. So Nancy Mace comes up to the podium to give the opening comments. Now, these aren't real long, but it's not what you would normally expect to hear at the prayer breakfast. The advice, and then I end up paying for it when I don't take the advice. Um, but I want to thank you for pulling this together. Another year, another standing room only event. And when I woke up this morning at 7, I, I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiancé, tried to pull me by my waist over this morning in bed, and I was like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. Uh, I got to get to the prayer breakfast, and I got to be on time, and little TMI, but um, I, I know you can wait. He's got, he's got, I'll see him later tonight, um, but I was here early today for you, Tim, and I think everybody, <laughs> everybody was here early for you today, and I think that's a true testament to your leadership, to your faith and your ability to bring people together and unify our country, because our country is so divided right now. Uh, one of my kids, my oldest, just had his car broken. So let's just parse that out a little bit, Mark. You're at the prayer breakfast, and you're yes. about 10 Which, by the way, I have never been to a prayer breakfast and don't know exactly what I'm getting, but I imagine you've got some very faithful uh, relig- religiously and socially conservative people there who are prepared to have some, uh, you know, sweet and savories. And that, that kind of talk, like the, uh, hey, I'm going to have premarital, I'm, I'm having premarital sex with my fiance, um, is, is strange. Well, I, when you said the sweet and savories for at the prayer breakfast, I was thinking, Maybe you were thinking of something else. <laughs> I was or, alluding. Is that what the, most breakfasts are? You looking for sweet and savories? <laughs> well, um, I'm just thinking about uh, you know uh, pancakes. You know they're they're oh. parading around as food when in fact they're just desserts with a little whipped cream smiley face on it. That's right. Yeah, that, that would be sweet and savory. Well, yeah. If we go into this, and the very first thing is. I wake up next to my fiance. Right. It, you know, by, by definition there, you're not in bed with your husband. Mm-hmm. He reaches over around my waist to pull me towards him. Yeah. Which sounds more like a 
Har- Harlequin novel or something. Right. Like <laughs> and then, no, 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 I'm going to be late for the prayer breakfast. And just and the part you don't hear is, and just wait till I tell everybody about what you're trying to do with me before the prayer breakfast. And I point you out in the crowd, which she had just done. Oh, my. Yes. And <laughs> then goes on to say, I'll take care of you later tonight. You didn't know this part, but I just stumbled on a a Hannity clip of hers because somehow Google and all the things that are tracking me in my computer thought I would want to see this because I wasn't searching for Hannity and Nancy Mace, but it happened to be him playing this clip to her while she was live on his um, show. She comes from a moderate district in South Carolina. Maybe she feels she can be a little more open for her constituency but he's like uh, he goes well he's going to be waiting a little bit longer because you're not going to be out of this show until almost midnight <laughs> <laughs> and she had to sit there with the the headshot of her close-up for for the national audience but she had a smile on her face she seems like a very um I suppose if if you have, I mean, I would call this pretty. Uh, she did say TMI, and that's what it is, right? Like this is uh, an extrovert, information. yeah, rambling on. Um, you know, like what was the? Uh, I don't know. I suppose it's it's true. Uh, I would not call it evil. It's just amusing, <laughs> you know. And uh, she's got to. She's just got to power through now. Um, you know, she can't take it back. So she's just got to power well, through. Mark, you said you've never been to a prayer breakfast, but I think you can take away a little bit of advice from this because if you are invited to a prayer breakfast, it. You need to come early or just don't come at all. <laughs> oh, get your Uber indeed. ride or whatever. She was you know. very, very oh, careful yeah. about uh, arriving early, indeed. She actually is, she's probably a rising star in the Republican Party, I would think. Very personable. <laughs> uh, we're going to hear her a little bit later in the show. She's on the House Oversight Committee, and she is questioning uh, the UFO whistleblower and something We'll play for the audience later, but uh, maybe she didn't, does need a little bit better filter uh, because I saw other clips of her in this same time period, news cycle, where uh, the National Defense Authorization Act passed, and she voted. For I'm never it. a fan of that thing. Yeah. <laughs> it comes through. It comes through. I think every two years because the Constitution's written so that we don't have a standing army, so they have to pass a new law every year to maintain the standing army. Yes, or every other year or whatever. Well, and and in this case, usually it's not t- the controversy. Usually is about what's actually in the defense authorization, as opposed to culture war amendments that get put on it. It's it's like the, the the defense authorization is sort of like the farm bill. It's there's so much um, constituent need in both of those that it's behooves the Congress people to like shove that pork out to the district. Yes. Take your stand on something else. Uh, but on this particular uh, bill this year, the house has, uh, because the house is controlled by the Republicans and this will, all these things will be dropped off on the Senate version of the bill and then it'll go to conference and we'll see what comes out. But, you know, they, they cut the funding that would provide uh, 
transportation expenses for military people for an abortion, uh, different, um, I think there probably, uh, something in there about diversity and, uh, you know, the training that goes on with that, There's different things that, that our culture war issues are thrown in there. Well, anyway, um, Nancy Mace said, I, I will use the euphemisms, a-holes. She said a lot of the, the Republicans are being a-holes about this, and they're making it hard on the Republicans that are coming from moderate dis- districts to just put these things on so everybody has to uh, redefend themselves or relitigate themselves in their home district over issues that maybe they don't feel that strongly about, or they're more moderate about, let's put it that way, uh, than the hard right Republicans that are putting these amendments on, and the, it just sort of is log rolling through Congress to to get there. Um, yeah, one wonders, um, like, the, in my opinion, 90% of people who vote probably shouldn't be, because they don't know the issues, and they don't know what's going on. If your Republican representative or senator, whatever the situation may be, is voting the way that you want them to vote 80% of the time, or your Democrat uh, senator, then what difference does it make, really, what party they belong to? They don't control the the party apparatus. They probably have very little uh, uh, effect on that. Uh, 435 drunken sailors in the House, after all. Um, And, uh, you know, but people will vote. It's oftentimes they'll just pick a party and vote that, total ticket all the way up and down it's the the rare person that um you know picks and chooses between the two trying to find the best candidates now mind you that doesn't that's not even the the easiest thing to do but if you're looking at uh, voting behavior or something like that then well perhaps that makes more sense than most well you know people say i've i don't vote for the party i vote for the person I yes, don't vote for that. the person. I vote for the constituency that's going to get the things that I want. But we'll come back on the other side and we'll talk about someone that got something he didn't want, and that was a third indictment. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org.
It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge. You had to think about that for a little bit right now. <laughs> Sorry, I was kind of swallowing. <laughs> I thought you were going to reveal your middle name or something like that. But <laughs> would have a real blockbuster story to lead with. I mean, we have a blockbuster story. That, of course, is the trifecta for former President Trump of being indicted again, this time on something, I, I guess, well, I guess everything has its own seriousness to it, especially if it can put you in prison. But on Tuesday, former President Donald Trump was charged with four felony counts related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The indictment accuses Trump of, quote, conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, it is the third in time he's been criminally charged since leaving the White House. His lead attorney on the case, John Lauro, uh, appeared on Fox News and laid out a strategy. Lauro said uh, that the prosecutor would be required to, quote, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the Donald Trump believes these allegations were false. Well, that's what he says, but that really isn't what the prosecutor has to prove. Now, we'll go into some of the, the details about what the prosecutor alleges, but just to, uh, e- even the left-leaning media jumped on that narrative. Of course, uh, Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends says, oh, you can't get inside his head. And I'm speaking of Donald Trump. And the co-host, uh, Ainsley Earnhardt, said to prove Trump actually believed that he lost because you're allowed to question an election, which her syntax was a little messed up there. But anyway, the National Review jumped on that, too. They got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, yada, yada. Even the Washington Post claims that that's a threshold question, whether Trump knew that the false things he said were false. Uh, Axios, another left-leaning, said that, proving that Trump pushed theories of voter fraud that he knew were false will be key to prosecutors' efforts. Even the New York Times said that establishing that Mr. Trump knew he was lying could be important to convincing a jury to convict him. Uh, there will be a burden to prosecutors to prove definitely that Trump knew fraud claim. So we have on the left and the right of our mainstream media, or at least the well-known media, this idea that you have to prove that Trump knew that uh, his claims were false, whether you, whether you want to agree with that premise or not that the claims are false. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the law, Mark. If you have a bank account uh-huh. and you believe that there's $5,000 in your bank account, but the bank says, no, you have $0 in your bank account. And darn it, you believe it, Mark. You know you have $5,000 in that bank. Absolutely. They are not giving you your $5,000. And you go take a gun and you go get your $5,000. Well, the law you broke was bank robbery. And it doesn't matter how justified you were in thinking that they messed up and you really had $5,000 that they weren't giving to you, the law that you're charged with doesn't have anything to do with what you believed or didn't believe. It's how you acted. So the, the charges that are against President Trump is even if you believe you won that election, 
the prosecutor is saying, you're not allowed to do these things. There, there's, there is another course of action that you could well, follow that is a legal course of action. I think the prosecutor's got a long row to hoe here, because you're absolutely right. It's not about what anyone believes, Trump or the prosecutor. Like, it's of what they can prove to an unbiased jury. By the way, I think juries are the stupidest system uh, for determining someone's guilt or innocence. I mean, why in the world would you want a panel of 12 ignoramuses uh, about the law to determine? But one, nonetheless... Um, that's what he's going to have if if it ever makes it that far. And frankly, this seems very much like, uh, you know, passionate Democrats bringing charges against uh, Trump in the hopes that it uh, knocks up his unfavorability rating um, in order to uh, get to keep him from winning. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of political games here. But this guy ultimately, like, they're proving whether or not Trump We've already had, uh, you know, senatorial hearings or whatever house hearings on this. We've had uh, the Congress critters have all gotten together and they've given their bloviated opinions, criminals, every one of them. Um, they're not going to be able to prove that Trump was trying to start a riot. There's certainly little bits of information that make it feel that way, but there's lots of bits of information that's like, you know, we're just going to march on Washington and tell them what we think and so that, stuff. That's what you think this is about. That, that? that part of it. The marching on Washington? Yeah. The, 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 the I don't have an opinion. I mean, you know, like I just, I, I, you know, I think that Trump was a sore loser, but I don't think that's, um, you know, I, I don't think that's a convictable offense. Um, I don't think Trump should be president because he's too old. But I don't think that Biden should be president either. I would like some choice that's not a crooked old pervert. Um, but it looks like I'm going to get that again. Well, you may be able to skip the pervert part. Which one? The, the guy that uh, molested the uh, the senatorial staff member, or the one that got uh, well, beat on by a Russian that's hooker? An allegation. And, but and so is the pee done by a Russian hooker. Um, look, the, the, Biden sniffs hand. kids, and that's not an allegation. I was talking actually more in the generic. You're always going to get an old guy, and you're always going to get uh, a level of uh, rascalianness. Uh, because sociopaths run for office, and the biggest sociopaths run for the biggest offices. Um, I, I, you know, I think I could ask for uh, somebody who is narcissist. Uh, narcissism is a form of uh, sociopathy. Isn't a uh, is no longer a clinical term, so one can just bandy it about. As right, they well, wish. Let's get back. You, you were you, you're focusing on the storming of the Capitol and. The, the crux of the indictments. Is that correct? Trump, Trump was, was not carrying a Confederate flag at the front of this, so he has plausible deniability that uh, people went um, farther than he wanted them to. All right. That's my stance. So I, I have I could approach this from that point, too, but let, let me go to something that... We and, and I would also say that, uh, uh, by the looks of it, uh, Trump's unfavorability rating has uh, changed uh, lightly to none. Um, I mean, you know, well, there's... Let, all right, so let me address what you said. Uh, as far as the proving to the jury that Trump 
didn't truly believe that that his claims were were true that he knew that they were false mm-hmm. uh, that's how it's framed um where it, although it's not critical on whether the law was broken or not it is important in trying to shape a jury sentiment you sure. know, if if you could put that in their brain they're going to be more inclined to find him guilty of the conspiratorial acts but, but now, hold on like we got to stop here for one second you got to remember that a president can't break the law now i'm not talking from a uh, legal standpoint cuz trump uh, certainly has been indicted uh, three times, and we can see this. But, you know, I mean, George Bush Sr. bombed a civilian population in Panama. No one cares. No one even remembers. Um, you know, we weren't at war, and it was a war crime, right? Uh, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Clinton, whoa. <laughs> Clinton fires a cruise missile at an aspirin factory. Well, the, the he killed civilians, true. Yep, bombed a thousand. You could, uh, as far as being a crime, it would be a, in the International Criminal Court. You could try him there, as you could, I think, under the way our current laws are in the U.S. I don't know that you could bring a case against him on that. But we're we're going down another path, and we're not staying on the issue at hand. Is well, I think the issue at hand that I'm trying to point out is is that I believe these are politically motivated charges and that post-election they will evaporate. Uh, Trump's been exonerated again and again through committees and, you know, He's Congress. He's exonerated on this. Not on this. No, and I think uh, my observation over the last years on this is there was a conspiracy, and it's much, it goes much broader then the the storming of the Capitol, although that was a conspiratorial effort also, and there's testimony that uh, is at least uh, evidentiary, evidentiary, if I said that with the proper number of syllables, evidentiary uh, to this. But let me back out, take a step back onto some of the other um, Issues. Let me actually say the indictment alleges that he participated in three conspiracy, obstructing the process by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted and certified by the federal government. You might think that that was referring to the storming of the Capitol, but that's no. only a component. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, it also in the indictment is obstructing the January 6th congressional proceedings specifically. The, but the, the way the results are collected and counted and certified that includes other things, uh, also interfering with the right to vote, to have one's vote counted. But where this all comes down, and I, I'm curious as to uh, how, how you can um, reconcile this with what you're saying, is the efforts that the John Eastman in the Department of Justice uh, did for President Trump on this, with the memo that he created that got circulated uh, through the administration to uh, favorable members of Congress and also to state legislators. So how do you how do you not see that as a conspiracy to uh, overturn the election and and not seat the electors from the states? 
That's what parties do. You don't think there were no, memos that went... That, yes, they do. They, 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 the, the Republicans have been um, gerrymandering and changing districts for decades. That's not the same thing. The Democrats are getting out people that are, um, you know, to vote that are dead. I mean, this is just... No, that, none of those things that you say have anything to do with what I just said. What I'm saying explain is... Explain to that, me what Well, you, you denied what I said, um, and I'm just pointing out that that's, this is what they do. You're so the throwing up Republicans... arguments, and, but so let me, let me simplify the question and narrow it down. Okay. What, how would you describe the process that they were going to replace the electors with? The the, 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 uh, the electoral college, how they were going to replace the electoral. I'd, I'd, I'd call it scheming, um, you know. But it it just sounded like a bunch of fantasy. Oh, the the vice president needs to not certify this. We'll put up new electors and all that stuff. Um, look, if well, uh, it went the, beyond the, fantasy, it the went people actual people in the White House have been coming up with alternative theories but for they, a long time. What's they, an into enemy combatant? This Mark. What's that? They acted on this. They so did George Bush Jr. when he called uh, people picked up in a non-legal uh, war enemy combatants rather than POWs and then treated them as though they were criminals within the United States. And nobody cares. Presidents break the law all the time and call it a unique legal theory. This was an attempt to overthrow the election, not just like in, say, Richard Nixon uh, gets cheated out of the 1960 election by John Daly uh, jiggling the vote counts in Chicago. It's not uh, Gore versus Bush where they're fighting over uh, how the electoral process carried out in Florida and who could gain the system more. This was a, a decision to overturn the process of the election. And in this, I'm only focusing on the one part because I, I knew or I didn't know, I suspected that we couldn't get past this because it's too much of a conspiracy, but there's too well documented to ignore it. This, this comes into the fundamental point. They said, we're going to get different electors. Well, the states had already certified the electors that were coming to vote in the Electoral College. So they had to go to the state legislators that were favorable to them to find yep. people that would stand up as alternative electors, even though there was no process to do that. And then they they manufactured those lists and they put them in the hands of uh, Congress people and senators that were favorable in Washington, D.C. when the Electoral College uh, was going to be uh, certified and... They were ready, standing by with those other electors, and they were going to move to do this. I have other things here that I can go to, but I'm just trying to keep this as, as, as narrow as we can because well, there was other uh, similar attempts to stop the count that was going on by Ted Cruz and others to put it a hold on the, the process. Now, those slates of electors were there. They, the idea that President Trump scheduled that uh, rally on the time the vote was counting was just a coincidence or, or a theater when he wanted to go and lead the people into Congress. There's quotes from Giuliani saying he's going to look so strong when he does this. He was going to interrupt that, and it was the Secret Service that wouldn't let him 
proceed on that. There's testimony on that. There's video of him in the, the limo arguing with the Secret Service when he wanted to leave that. His own words on the platform was, I'm going to lead you to the Congress. I'll be marching so, with you. So his ideas is to show up at the uh, the event, kind of uh, Dustin Hoffman, Elaine, Elaine, just as the wedding's going off. She uh, turns, she sees him up there, she, she realizes she loves him and uh, leaves the, uh, you know, the, the, the dupe at the altar and goes with the guy, creating a generation of stalkers, right? Um, that this... Uh, uh, this is the this is the moment that well, Trump it, imagines creating. I, I don't know why you want to keep putting up different scenarios from some other movie. No, what it was it happened. They had the electoral slates already prepared. This was a months long process that they were doing, and they were conspiring around the country in favorable state legislatures to have the alternative electors. They wanted to disrupt the process so that the the election couldn't be certified, and then they were going to come forward with the favorable members of Congress and the uh, Senate and move to hold the process and not allow it. And then they, they would tie up the process with these fake electors, and they there's a paper trail on all of this, Mark. They, they started with Eastman, and then it circulated out, and then the conspiracy built around it. Well, it, uh, it, you build a wonderful case. The prosecution ought to hire you for their, uh, their situation. It looks like they've got to convince 12 mouth-breathing ignoramuses that have uh, many months to spare uh, to uh, listen to the uh, rambling, rambling tropes. And in, uh, you know, I'm sure the swift justice's swift sword will probably find out in four, five, six years what's going on. Oh, I think Trump will be dead. You know... I don't want to interrupt our train here because we've got it moving. <laughs> but I ha maybe later in the show, uh, there is an interesting theory about mouth breathers. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, so I just focused on that part there. But there, there's co-conspirators. There's six co-conspirators in this indictment. One appears to be Jeffrey Clark. He was the man Trump wanted to make attorney general who intended to use the military to quell the protest and was urging uh, President Trump to use the Insurrection Act to move forward that, the Insurrection of 1807, which permits the military to enforce uh, domestic laws invoking martial laws. So we have that. That's much bigger and broader than what you the things that... That sounds like a John Adams thing. He sure did like that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, Ted Cruz... Uh, well, John Eastman is the co-conspiracy, but he, he wrote to Tred Cruz uh, asking him to, uh, to get a on the floor of the Senate a 10-day emergency audit and vote against the certification. The, uh, Eastman wrote to Pence's lawyer, this is the paper trail, to beg him to get Pence to adjourn Congress for 10 days to allow the legislatures, the, what I was telling you, the favorable state legislators, to, as well to allow full forensic audit. It was all about delay. If we were talking about a third world country and the president that lost the election was going to hold a big rally, uh, say on the, in the capital of Brazil or, or Argentina or something like that, when the, the new president was going to be, uh, installed, 
would we doubt that the that loser was going to try and and stop the the procession or the proceedings? You know, I, I when it first was announced that the uh, rally was going to be held on January sixth, you know, what was that? A month and a half ahead of time. I was like, some some stuff is going down. This isn't something that just happens like this. There's more to this than this. And while this was going on in TV, and you know that that was plus 2020 with COVID and all, that was great stock trading time and options trading time. So I'm on my computer all the time trading that year. Great, mm-hmm. great year for that. I saw when Trump said, "I'm going to lead you." I sold out of everything, and the market crashed for uh, just a couple hours, and I bought back in at the end of the afternoon. So I profited from it. But so you're reliving it, your, your, your moments in time. I was calling my friends that, that traded, and I said, you better get out right now because this is going to hit the fan in a matter of minutes, and it did. Well, um, I was in uh, Saipan at the time, uh, the U.S. Marianas, uh, enjoying not having to think about elections at all. And uh, what I thought was, well, Trump's a big uh, guy who is very good at rallies. This is what he does, right? Like, this is his strong suit, and people go to their strong suits in times of crisis. He's going to, his intention is, is to have a rally that is in competition with the inauguration. And his victory, at the very least, will be uh, attracting more people to his rally than they had at the inauguration. He's going to you know, fill the stadium or whatever it is. And that would be, in and of itself, a victory. Now, um, what one could be imagining when one was imagining leading these people into the halls of Congress, um, I, I would not care to speculate. But, uh, you know, there's I, all I'm saying is, is that uh, rich people don't get convicted because they get the very best legal defenses. And Trump is going to get the very best legal defense. The likelihood of him being convicted of this seems low, and it all seems like political theater to me. All right. Well, I don't think we can carry this too much farther because we have something even more important in the next hour is the UFO hearings. And it, ah, yes, very the, important. Uh, electoral things will be moot when the aliens land and harvest. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new alien overlords. Yes, I, I will. Uh, I'm ready to roll over on all the other humans. <laughs> Just this is something that went on in the Marvel Universe, right? Like the scrolls came to take over. Yes. I just wonder what they want from us and why we aren't making money off it before they take it from us. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we are. So I, I think I have time to tell you the mouth breather anecdote. Okay. Uh, first off, there is a assertion that people are getting uglier. And part of that is because the jaw lines are receding. And the jaw lines are receding. So, you, you know, like, you know, strong jaw is considered attractive. Sure. And, and a, or, or it's covered by subcutaneous fat, one of the two. Is consider, not considered that. People are breathing through their mouth too much, and the jaw is not getting developed. And that's why we don't have strong-jawed people anymore. And also receding teeth. So... You could be one of the last generation 
to remember strong John's mark or, or maybe your, your offspring. And then from soon, we will well, why, a, why are people breathing through their we'll mouths? We'll a bunch of chinless, hairless <laughs> apes that are walking the planet. No wonder the aliens want to remove us from their line of sight. You're listening. Why to are people breathing through their mouths, Henry? Rains. More to come. <laughs> okay. We don't get sucked up into the outer space. Eleutheromania. The insatiable desire for freedom. We have been enslaved for all our lives. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge. And we're here to tell you about the out-of-this-world hearing that happened in Washington, D.C. over the course of the last week. It's worldwide news. It, of course, is the UFO UAP hearing. Are we alone here? Something out there? And Mark, I mean, this was a global story. It was all over India, Asia, Europe, probably even in Honduras. Who knows where? (laughs) Everybody wants to talk about uh, UFOs. What is a UAP? What's that? Uh, Unidentified aerial phenomena. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that's a more accurate thing because it could be like lightning or something like that, I guess. Yeah, let's just throw over the last five decades of what we're used to talking about, just like we do with... So many other expressions, but, you know, it's it's more than just the the hearing. And and it's more than the whistleblower that popped up starting doing media interviews over the last couple weeks, maybe three or four weeks. Uh, It's more than just a news story today. It's been ongoing and percolating back to 2017 with the New York Times story. But there's so much. I don't follow it as I should. And I don't know if, if you're a UFO, UAP aficionado, but we really need someone that can give us the background and, and lay it all out for us, don't you think? Well, I've got good news for you. We've had a, a former guest here on Free Talk Live returning, and, you know, he's the kind of guy that has his finger in every glass. Like, he, he's taking the temperature around the globe. He knows what's going on. And he does that all from little old Bradenton, Florida, Manatee County, is editor of the BradentonTimes.com. I think you're talking about Dennis Mitch Mealy. Indeed. Hello, Dennis. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being patient with us and, and making time to be with us. Um, first of all, known Dennis, I don't know, I think it's going back over a decade now, and he is the editor of the BradentonTimes.com, but he's also a published author, multiple books, uh, historical fiction, I mean, historical and fiction, and uh, always a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, Dennis, what's, what's going on 
with you these days? Because I know your son's out at USC. Just we don't we don't need a whole personal bio, but but what are you up to these days? I'm spending a lot of time on the sandy beaches now that I have so much more of it since I'm an empty nester. Oh, that's right. Well, you mean you mean uh, Sullivan doesn't want to come see you every break from school? Uh, he had been until he got a girlfriend out there, and now he has an apartment <laughs> instead of a dorm room. So it it was every single break. It's become must much more infrequent. <laughs> All right. Well, Dennis, I I know it was great to have you here because you followed this story. You actually invited me on your podcast to, I guess, more be a sounding board because I certainly wasn't an expert. And I, I made some observations, but you had the background. Um, what is the, the timeline, not just of the whistleblower, but when did UFOs and, and the media interests come into general imagination of the populace? You know, it's interesting that 2017 New York Times article was a massive shift in terms of mainstream media portrayal of this phenomenon. And that started what seemed like a slow drip from... Um, government sources acknowledging in kind of really coded languages about the idea that there are some, uh, you know, phenomenon that they've experienced and had interactions with through military jets and so forth that are inexplicable. And the, the term that came out in that article from, the, again, from the government that was extremely rattling to a lot of people was non-human origin. So that term um, really got people saying, is the government finally acknowledging, because the, the, the line all the way going back really to Project Blue Book is we have no evidence whatsoever of any sort of alien life, alien you know, spacecraft or anything like that. And that was a massive shift. Now that had a lot of people, myself included, starting to wonder if this is maybe a little bit of a would you say a psyop in which they're leaking information as potential cover for military technology that's being developed and maybe tested in case there are either public sightings here or maybe even by adversaries, depending where they were doing it. So there, there wasn't a lot. It seemed controlled enough, this little drip, drip leak, that that seemed to be a, a very real possibility. But then the other one was if we are experiencing more of these interactions and they're starting to believe that they they're not going to be able to keep it adequately secret from the public then i think you probably would want to have a sort of slow drip of let's get people comfortable with the maybes about this over time because one of the real fears and i think very warranted has always been if if even if people did know about this uh, and it was released publicly. Would there be a massive panic? I mean, in the the you know uh, the, the radio. What was the radio play? War, War of the Worlds is always the example that's used. So, could the general public handle you know that understanding, or would there be a massive freakout? So, I think that was where everybody was kind of split until David Grush came out, the whistleblower, uh, and started making some very serious allegations. Again, the big thing here, though is nothing yet has been firsthand. So we haven't heard from anybody on his end with the, with the information he's giving. However, we had several pilots who gave testimony before Congress talking about their 
their interactions with crafts that, and, and we're talking, I mean, David Fraber in, in particular, uh, you know, he's been described by some of his peers as the closest thing we have to an Iceman or a Top Gun in the U.S., you know, recent modern military history in terms of just being a hot, top net notch fighter jet pilot. And someone who's not the kind of guy that would just necessarily make something up for the, for the lulls. Oh, correct. Well, he clearly didn't make it up because we have video of it. Right. But the, the idea that he'd have a very, shall we say, credible expert reaction to say, I don't know how this technology could exist given what we do know about, you know, uh, uh, flight technology of our own or our adversaries. So, you know, for someone like that to say, I'm completely befuddled because I can't imagine it's not a, uh, it's not like going to stealth bomber or something where it's just an, an impressive leap to what we've always known. It's something that's clearly using different propulsion mechanisms, uh, most likely from, from what everybody's saying, anti-gravity, whether, whether they're not using the only real propulsion we've ever known, which is basically you make a big explosion, push it out the back and it propels you forward. And we've just gotten really, really, really good at how to do that in an extremely powerful way. We've never really, you know, evolved any kind of technology in, in, in a, you know, man craft sort of way that's different than that. So at this hearing, as you referred to them, we have David Grush, who was the big time whistleblower. He's gotten legal protection to be a whistleblower. We also have David Fravor. We're going to hear from all these people a little bit later in the show. Uh, a former Navy commander, quite a resume there. And Ryan Graves, who's the executive director of uh, Americans for Safe Aerospace and also a pilot. But who is who himself has had interactions now? What about, but, but really we've been hearing a lot of these stories and we're always waiting for the, you know, like, like show me the money, show me the dead alien or show me the live alien. How, what, how, we go back into the sixties even with stories like this, don't we? Let me, let me set the expectations for these hearings. If anybody thinks there's going to be a bombshell in the hearings, other than what we've seen in these recent media reports that these people, these people have all, I mean, uh, David Faber has been talking publicly for a couple of years now. He was on the Joe Rogan experience, I think around, God, I think it might've been pre COVID talking about the Tic Tac video. So we're not going to get anything from these witnesses, but beyond what was already out there, what this is for is Congress is hearing it firsthand and in greater depth from them. And what will, if anything come from this is the will from these committees and, and then Congress as a whole to demand and possibly even pass legislation to co- completely uh, uh, unveil, at least to, to Congress itself, if not to the public, but completely unveil what's known inside the government. It's very clear, you know, I'm a former military officer, and I'll tell you that the one thing that the military is really big on is compartmentalization. So they really believe that the only way to have adequate security is to limit everybody involved in a, in a top secret type classified project to a role and the information within that role only. And a lot of, you know, scientists and technicians and engineers and stuff that have worked in that realm have always lamented that because science tends to work best if 
all of the minds are sharing the ideas and bouncing it off of each other so that they could possibly see something that someone else doesn't. Uh, the compartmentalization. And in fact, there's an interesting thing with the, go ahead. But no, I, I, I want you to continue. I just wanted to uh, get to something about you. And- something very interesting. I went and saw Oppenheimer when it, when it opened and you see that in their frustrations as well, because when the, during Manhattan project, the compartmentalization was the biggest inhibitor of the progress And you have Oppenheimer arguing, we can't do science this way. We're not going to get to the answer if everybody can only know a little piece of the puzzle. We have to have all these minds seeing every piece on the board. Um, Well, I think that that one of the – although there wasn't a factual bombshell, per se, that came out as far as having hard evidence, I think what the bombshell was was actually hearing hearing these things said in a congressional setting – with both Republicans and Democrats as a receptive yes. audience to that. And we're, we're going to start hearing a little bit of what was revealed or, and told to the uh, representatives. Now, the first clip we have, oh, 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 this is really, Henry, pardon me? Henry, one more really important point yeah. is that this is under oath. So while all those other media uh, appearances were not, so that's another important point to consider. And the witnesses insisted upon that. And there was some among the committee that didn't want to have it done that way, but they very much wanted to make sure it was under oath. And that that does make it a little bit different. And uh, since you brought that up point, another good point to add to to that is that David Grush, the um, whistleblower that has the legal standing, he's also at risk if he reveals classified information in a public setting to these people. So he's tiptoeing very carefully. This first clip is uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina. If anybody that was listening to the beginning of the show uh, heard a different clip from her, but this is her in a more professional setting that uh, will come to. She's the Congresswoman from South Carolina, and she pretty much gets him to say all the key points in a very uh, relatively short period of time here. Let's hear what uh, she has to say and what David Grush is going to fill us in on. Do you believe that officials at the highest levels of our national security apparatus have unlawfully withheld information from Congress and subverted uh, our oversight board? There are certain elected leaders that had more information that I'm not sure what they've shared with certain gang of eight members or et cetera, but uh, certainly uh, I would not be surprised. Okay. You say that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligence extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Um, okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> um, if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, I stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my news station biologics came to some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Not- this got a lot of headlines around when the non-human biologics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, technically, that could be a, a mouse that was... My cat. The, the, whatever the object was crashed on. But... Are we supposed to make more of it than, than that? Or? I think that was very careful language. 
from from what you were talking about before. He in the interview was a little bit uh I forget the exact terminology he used when he was on that was it the News Nation or whatever where we did the series of those interviews and the terminology was a little bit uh I think more revealing. So I think that's a function of him being under oath and it being, you know, the all those things you talked about. Uh, he, he very clearly suggested. Now, again, hedging this, he says that he has no firsthand knowledge. He hasn't seen non-human biologics. He has not, um, you know, understood that from a very personal level, but that it has been relayed to him by other people within the the, the projects that that had been part of it. And we're going to hear it in just a second here. He offers if they can get a skiff. Now, what's a skiff, Dennis? The, a, the secure um, room. Oh, yeah, with, I forget what the acronym stands for, but he does he does offer that if they're able to put that into place, he will tell them whatever he's able he'll, to do. He'll name names and say where yeah. the files are. and But... It, we can't put too much uh, of a sinister spin on it because the there are a number of skiffs in Congress, these rooms that are secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have not, the, the House Oversight Committee has not been able to secure, secure a secure room to get this testimony um, in a closed setting. But there's a lot of stuff going on in Congress. So maybe it's a scheduling issue, but I think now that we've had a, a few days of it being a global story may find that those rooms are going to open up and be able to be filled with this testimony. Here's where he pretty much says, I'll give you the goods if you just get me in the right room. Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to you that are currently still on the program. And was this documentary average video photos eyewitness? Like, how would that be determined? The specific documentation I would have to talk to you to skip about. Um, okay. So, and, and you may or may not be able to answer my last question. Maybe we get into a skip at the next hearing that we have. But who in the government either, what agency, sub-agency, what contractors, who should be called into the next hearing about UAPs, either in a public setting or even in a private setting? And, and you probably can't name names, but what agencies or organizations contractors, et cetera, who need to call in to get these questions answered, whether it's about funding, what programs are happening, and what's out there. I can give you a specific cooperative and hostile witness list of specific individuals uh, that were in those. And, and how soon can you get that list? I'm happy to provide that to you after the hearing. Super. Thank you. And I go back. Well, there you go. What are we waiting for? Let's hear from them. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to wonder whether there's maybe some pressure being Push down from somewhere not to put that in place. Why? What would be the the, the thought process behind well, somebody he, who doesn't want that? He's alleging that the reason why this is being kept from Congress is because the DOD is working directly with defense contractors who they're allowing to have this information in and access to, to these things. In a hope to reverse engineer the technology for military purposes, and that other countries, including China and Russia, are doing the same thing with materials they, according to him, have also collected throughout time. And, and I mean, like that's a 
a foregone conclusion, right? Like that would be one of the possibilities of what's going on here, and it would be high on my list of things. I mean, you know, I've got all kinds of possibilities bouncing around in my head, but of course, if the military finds, I don't know, an engine that has no friction, um, they're going to be like, well, how do we make an engine with no friction? Uh, they, they want that, and there's well, no doubt okay. about it. This brings us to a really interesting story that's not part of these hearings, but I'd really be remiss if I didn't bring this up. The most, the most credible, the most credible story on record comes from a man named Bob Lazar. Now, Bob Lazar was an engineer who was an expert in propulsion systems. And in the early 70s, he worked at Los Alamos, which, if you've seen the Oppenheimer movie, I, I was I only learned in that that it was actually built, constructed in New Mexico for the actual Manhattan Project. Nothing existed there before that. And the military uh, base that's still there, Lazar worked there. He then came out and said he was part of a siloed, highly compartmentalized team that was brought in to look at and study and try to explain a propulsion system from a downed UFO. And he talked about in depth with great detail and an obvious understanding of that kind of engineering, what the project he worked on with and that it was anti-gravity and that, that he couldn't explain it because, and he said everybody, you know, was racking their brain on it because it was not, according to any, you know, scientific understanding that we had of how propulsion works. We're speaking so, with Dennis Mitch Maley. He is the editor of the Brains of Times.com. And he has a number of books on Amazon.com. You can just search on his name and they're all going to pop up for you. Uh, we give a little bit more time. Uh, but, Mark, what are your thoughts before we well, have to... Again, I'm wondering this, uh, the secrecy, right? Uh, you know, I mean, like... It's not a secret that if the Chicoms uh, have a downed uh, a spaceship, that they're trying to re- uh, re- uh, you know re- reverse engineer, or if they've got an alien, they're asking him questions or whatever it is that they're doing. So, I mean, this doesn't take just I mean, any third grader can figure this out. There's no reason to keep this from the American people for that reason. We can, you know, somebody could come out and say, "Yep, got us some alien stuff." And we're not going to show it to you because it's a security risk. And that would answer a lot of questions. I mean, like they create questions by through the secrecy, right? Like I think another possibility that hasn't been tossed out yet is, is these aliens that are visiting have infiltrated the government and are now ruling us. Have you been you watching know? Secret Invasion? I, it's it's one of the possibilities, right? Disney is behind all of this. Just to pump up those Disney Plus numbers, if you ask our governor, was, he's gonna he'll he'll I, get the goods on him. I, that I was V that, from the eighties. <laughs> I would say that if there was a form of higher intelligence that could devise that sort of engineering, there is very little evidence that they are running a government. Well, I, I think that well, we have we seem to keep keep low uh, expectations as far as that goes, and, and there's all kinds of other options that are going on too. And Let's talk about some of them here in in just a moment. Hold that thought. We're going to come back with lots more from the hearing and from beyond, and 
just outside our known universe here. You're listening to Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. More to come. It's Rains and Edge on Free Talk Live Network right here. I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge, and we've got with us uh, Dennis Mitch Maley, uh, author, UFO uh, expert, uh, talking about what's going on <laughs> in Congress right now. He certainly is. Uh, he's, 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 uh, he knows more than I do. And I've got lots of crazy questions for you here going on, Dennis. Uh, if you're just Dennis, do you prefer a... Dennis or Mitch? Yeah. Mitch. If Mitch is good. If you're just joining us, we are covering uh, and getting um, expert commentary on the whistleblower hearing, or the, rather the UFO, or if you really are up to date with your terminology, the unidentified aerial phenomena, uh, the UAPs that was held in Washington starting last week. I believe they're still carrying on, uh, at least into this week they did, and had three main uh people testifying, David Grush, former U.S. intelligence official who actually uh, worked in the program that was being discussed uh, as far as investigating these um, these different aerial phenomena and what, what evidence was there. We have David Fravor, a former Navy commander who experienced an encounter with what he called a tic-tac-looking aerial object but that outperformed anything known to, to human science. Ryan Graves, Executive Director for Americans for Safe Aerospace. And uh, just if you could bring us back, Dennis, like in about 20 or 30 seconds, where you think we left off uh, as before we go into some of the other testimony. Well, I think we're, we're at a place right now where Congress is getting it under oath from the best available witnesses that are willing to come forward. And if this is persuasive enough, what we can hope to expect is either legislatively or through other means to require disclosures either to Congress and the public or, you know, my, my inclination would be probably at least first to the committees in Congress. All right. Well, we had a number of uh, Congress people that ha- got their chance at uh, Mr. Grush. Uh, one, Representative Burleson, uh, was, I would say, a very interested uh, participant in these um, hearings, and he had much to say for with Mr. Grush, and let's see what that brings us up to. At one point, you said that there there, there, there uh, has been harmful activity or aggressive activity. Has any of the activity uh, been aggressive, been uh, hostile to in your reports? So he is asking Grush if any American whether a contractor or someone in the armed forces or basically any one of our guys or girls got injured in the process of this uh, program to identify and explain the UAPs. And uh, the activity by by UAPs or by by people within the federal government? Both. Okay, so there has been activity by by alien or 
non, non-human technology and or beings that has caused harm to humans. Uh, I can't get into the specifics in an open environment, but at least the activity that I personally witnessed, not to be very careful here, because uh, you don't, you know, it's I never to acknowledge tradecraft, right? So what I personally witnessed myself and my wife was very disturbing. With his wife? How did the wife get involved in all this? I don't know. I found that very curious when he made that testimony. And I, I, I really wish somebody would at least try to press a little bit with that. Yeah. Uh, even though, you know, he's being a little evasive with the... You it know, sounds the, like it happened in a cornfield in Iowa, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> like he got it probed or something. Oh, my wife agrees. Well, I, I guess somebody should have asked the question. We would have asked the question if we had been there. I, I think it's a it's a fair question to ask, but I think that there's also something to think about here. Is this some if if aliens came here, then they traveled in some manner in super light speed or through some kind of dimensional porthole, you know, wormhole. You you pick uh, because they what they didn't do is take a choo choo from the Andromeda galaxy to uh, Earth, right? Like so, they they took something that was fast or travels in some way that we're not familiar with. If a being like that wants to hurt us, I suspect they're not going to pull out a Smith & Wesson uh, Anaconda 44 Magnum and point it at somebody. Well, when you talk about getting injured, though, there's, there's two things to look at. And I'll point, there's another recently released documentary, uh, excellent, excellent documentary on what was little known in America, but a massive event in Brazil in 1991 or 92. The documentary is called Moment of Contact. And there is a plethora of firsthand testimony from people who claim to have seen a downed craft with bodies on it, including one that was still alive. And there, there were little girls that had seen it that are now adults that are interviewed now in the documentary. But the, the, the most fascinating part to me was there was a soldier, because the military responded to it, and there was a soldier who got immediately very, very sick. And they talked to doctors who had treated him, and they said he had had an infection all through his body that spread quickly like nothing they'd ever seen. And they threw everything they could at it, antibiotic-wise, and it had no effect and he died. So the question then becomes, you know, we, we know what happened when European settlers came to North America. Is there a possibility of when you have interplanetary species, obviously they're going to have germs and diseases and stuff too. And clearly it, it, it would, you know, you would suspect that we don't have any sort of immunity or anything to it. Sounds like a completely uh, fair fear. Well, as you go through the past, one of the congressmen asked David Grush, how long have we known about these or what, what's the earliest incident that has been reported? And the answer was a little bit surprising. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial threats unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? I like to use the term non-human. I like to promote origin, keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis- discussed publicly uh, previously in the 1930s. So prior to World War II, 
there were incidents that were reported to the government and that was that earlier than you had heard before Dennis yes except from Bob Lazar uh who said that his understanding rumors threat because you know we weren't supposed to talk we weren't supposed to talk to each other but rumors that again not being told by their directors but other people that were working at Los Alamos with him he said that the craft they were working on was actually found in an archaeological dig and he has no idea how old but it wasn't a uh uh it wasn't it wasn't like a Roswell type incident so i mean when when we talk about old uh, scenarios, it kind of brings up to m- my mind one of the disputes that I have with the uh, the, the UFO thing. Um, I mean, basically, I've read comics for some time, right? And prior to, like, somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, um, with Close Encounter, and then there was one movie actually before that, uh, they introduced the concept of the gray, right? This uh, big-headed, big-eyed alien creature, um, and pretty much all of the aliens prior to this, the gray thing, um, was robots, bugs, goops, um, you know, maybe sea creatures, things like that, tentacled creatures, things that were very non-human looking, but they, they hadn't really settled on this uh, concept of the gray. Um, and now it's kind of moved on. Now it's uh, shape-shifting lizard people. Um, you know, like there's a variety of things, but it seems like aliens come in fashion. And that makes me skeptical. One thing I've also always been skeptical of is... What do you mean is, in fashion? Are you talking about their appearance or their interest? Right. Okay. Quite, quite, exactly their appearance, right? Well, like, uh, why, why were they bugs in the 30s? Those, those depictions in the movies of the greys and stuff are based on the reported sightings because that's the most common description people had had way before the movies and there's ufo experts uh there's a couple of uh very credible journalists that spent almost their whole career in here george knapp was an early one through the 50s and 60s and jeremy corbell who you know they gave thanks to uh the committee chairman did um is by far the most knowledgeable and and uh studied on this today uh and they said there's essentially three depictions that happen a lot. And we also have to say that there, if there are beings that have the ability to do that, there may be different species of interplanetary beings as well. But there's a small, um, smaller one that, that are, you know, the little green men phenomenon came out of. There are the grays, which are the large, you know, hairless, large head, small bodies. And then there are the ones they call either the, the Nords or the something else where they're very, very tall and much bigger than humans. And there's even been some uh, musings through archaeology with some early art and cave paintings thousands of years old that show these very, very tall beings with what are clearly meant to be the tribesmen. And they're like, oh, they must be gods. The other question is, or were they visited, you know? Right. I mean, you know, History Channel has made a lot of money on aliens. Yes. Right. (laughs) There's there's no doubt about it. To the fashion and the images, because, you know, you think about it. 1930s, we're talking about the the reported incident, something that we're we're still looking at as evidence or looking for the evidence of it. But as far as imagery, you didn't have movies until after the early 1900s. So people weren't going to see 
any kind of moving image of any kind of monster. You know, you it's hard to believe, but like woodcuts, the, the woodcuts that were used in newspapers wasn't until uh, Andrew Jackson's presidency. So that's like 200 years ago to get these imageries in people's imagination, to get them, you know, memes of the day. But if you look at the 1930s and the 1920s, that's when the pulp novel became popular. And science fiction in the pulp novel was uh, something that people would see. They'd see the covers on the newsstand. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan was one of his characters, but he had John Carter's of Mars, and they had other different kind of uh, images like that. When the comic strips of the... the used to be a whole comic section, not a comics page, in the uh, newspapers of the 20s, and you had Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. So there, there was lots of imagery of this. Um, but what we do have at this, this uh, hearing, if I can turn it back to that, is a couple of individuals who actually recount what they visualized, what they saw, not they visualized, what they saw, and what the visualization of that seems like. This is Ryan Graves. He is the uh, pilot as well as the person that has the advocacy now to get uh, more of this information out to the public. And here's what he uh, said he experienced. Mr. Graves, again, I'd like to know, um, how do you know that these were not our aircraft? Some of the behaviors that we saw in a working area, we would see these objects uh, being at 0.0 Mach, that's zero airspeed, over a certain pieces of the ground. So what that means, just like a river, if you throw a bobber in, it's going to float downstream. These objects were staying completely stationary in Category 4 hurricane winds. These same objects would then accelerate to the supersonic speed, 1.1, 1.2 Mach, uh, and they would do so in very erratic and quick behaviors that we don't, I don't have an explanation for. Okay. Have you spoken to um, commercial and military pilots um, that have seen these off of our East Coast? I have. So he says there's other people he knows that could recount these same uh, images or activities that he has just explained to them. You know, it, whenever somebody says something with authority uh, and is articulate about it, it seems to carry more weight. I don't know. Maybe he has a motivation to, you know, he's got an organization, but he has a motivation to perpetuate these stories. But uh, it does give a little gravity when you listen to him about that. Um, Mark? Well, I, I, my, my supposition has always been this. This is the stance that I will take, is that I'm absolutely positively sure with the uh, billions and billions of galaxies and the trillions and trillions of stars within those galaxies and the innumerable number of planets that uh, must circle those stars that absolutely there is intelligent life out there. And it seems statistically likely to me that we that, that some of it is, is moving along faster. I mean, we've already put things on the moon. So we've been outside the Earth's atmosphere. Um, that some of this stuff, some of these creatures, whatever they are, beings, um, uh, are able to travel farther and faster than we are. And Why do they want to come here, Mark? The, the, I, I have yet to what, get there. Or, or, or <laughs> what possible good thing could there be that they want to come here for us? Well, I mean, we study bugs and uh, plants and, and all kinds of things. They're curious. Uh, that's, that's a possibility. 
uh, and this is the thing is, is that if, it, if they were afraid of us and what we would grow into, they'd take care of that right away if they were not friendly. But um, my supposition is, is that these things either travel super light speed, which to our understanding is not possible. Now, um, or they travel through interdimensional wormholes, or they got on some kind of slow spacecraft and came here, in which case, who would do that? Who would spend lifetimes going to just need to let the herd grow large enough to harvest? Well, that's, you know, again, and what are you going to do about it? One of the theories that, that comes up is that the, the vast majority of sightings have started to happen after we dropped the bomb. And then a lot of them were near major military bases. So one of the theories is they got interested in this civilization that maybe they knew of from before that was evolving and had maybe gotten to a point where they were dangerous to their own universe and maybe, maybe, or excuse me, their own galaxy and maybe the universe at large. And they said, okay, we need to start making some more reconnaissance there to see where they're at with this technology. That, that's right. That's an important milestone in the development of a civilization is the splitting of the atom. I know that other aliens have atoms, right? Um, I know they got that. And so the splitting of the atom, important milestone. You know, go ahead and study us. But here's what my question is, and this is what my question's always been. If they can travel super light speed, which is an impossible task by our understanding, then or they can travel through wormholes and these kinds of things, how are we ever going to see them? Like, how would they be, uh, you know, traveling in space and time within our atmosphere? In uh, How would they crash into something? It just doesn't seem like they're even working on the same plane that we are. So this is why it's always seemed like a bunch of hokum to me. Yes, I believe aliens uh, exist. Yes, I believe they have visited. No. I do not believe that uh, they have ever, like, we've ever seen them. You know, like, it's like ducks in a duck blind. You know, the ducks aren't presupposing there's a guy with a shotgun down there. They're just going around quacking and doing what they're doing. Well, as authoritative as Ryan Graves sounded, there was one other person there that sounded even more authoritative, more had more gravitas, actually was a commander. That was David Fravor. And this one is just a little bit longer than the other ones we played, but it's so in depth and detail. We'll, we'll stop in the middle of it. But uh, he talks about the, the giant tic-tac as how best he describes it. As you know, my name is David Fravor. I'm a retired commander in the United States Navy. In 2004, I was a commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41, the world-famous Black Aces. We were attached to Carrier Airing 11, stationed on board the USS Nimitz, and had begun a two-month workup cycle off the coast of California. On this day, we were scheduled for a 2v2 air-to-air training with the USS Princeton as our control. When we launched off Nimitz, my wingman was joining up. We were told that the training was going to be suspended, and we were going to proceed with real-world tasking. As we proceeded to the west, the air controller was counting down the range to an object that we were going to, and we were unaware of what we were going to see when we arrived. There, uh, the controller told us that these objects uh, had been observed for over two weeks, coming down from over 80,000 feet, rapidly descending to 20,000 feet, hanging out for hours, and then going straight back up, for those who don't realize, about 80,000 feet of space. We arrived at the location at approximately 20,000 feet, the controller called Merch Plot, which means that our radar blip is now in the same resolution cell as the contact. 
As we looked around, we noticed that we saw some white water off our right side. It's important to know that the weather on this day was as close to perfect as you could ask for off the coast of San Diego. Clear skies, light winds, calm seas, no white caps from waves. So the white water stood out in a large blue ocean. All four of us, because we were an F-18 officer, we had pilots and window in the back seat, looked down a small, saw a white tic-tac object with a longitudinal axis pointing north-south and moving very abruptly over the water like a ping-pong ball. There were no rotors, no rotor wash, or any sign of visible control surfaces like wings. As we started clockwise towards the object, my wizard and I decided to go down and take a closer look at the other aircraft staying on high cover to observe both us and the tic-tac. We proceeded around the circle about 90 degrees from the start of our descent, and the object suddenly shifted its longitudinal axis, aligned it with my aircraft, and began to climb. We continued down another 270 degrees, nose low, where the tic-tac, or we consumed 270 degrees, and we went nose low to where the tic-tac would have been. Our altitude at this point was about 15,000 feet, and the tic-tac was about 12,000. As we pulled nose onto the object within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerated in front of us and disappeared. Our wingmen, roughly 8,000 feet above us, lost contact also. It was just a little bit more. And he gave all the details about the maneuvering and the distances and the angles and the trajectory and the, 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 uh, somewhat of the physics and the capabilities of it all. And it leaves you going, well, wow, man, I'd like to see that. Well, then I think this is the closest thing to a bombshell that you're going to hear in this hearing. Actually, there's video of this. And he says, he tells the uh, assembled crown about it. And not just video, a little bit more than a video. We immediately turned back to see where the white water was at. And it was gone also. So as you started to turn back towards the east, the controller came up and said, sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is at your cat point roughly 60 miles away in less than a minute. You can calculate the speed. We returned to Nimitz. We were taking off our gear. We were talking to one of my crews that was getting ready to launch. We mentioned it to them. And they went out and luckily got the video that you see, that 90-second video. What you don't see is the radar tape that was never released, and we don't know where it's at, of the active jamming that the object put on an APG-73 radar. And I can get into modes later if you're interested. So... Let me, uh, so that was a 90 second video and also a recording of the radar. Here he says it again. We're taking off our gear. We were talking to one of my crews who was getting ready to launch. We mentioned it to them. And they went out and luckily got the video that you see, that 90 second video. What you don't see is the radar tape that was never released. We don't know where it's at. Of the active jamming that the object put on an APG 73 radar. I can get into moments later if you're interested. I'm a little surprised since it seems like the, the video was public knowledge why they didn't play that into the hearing at that time. It's or not very uh, – I've seen the video, and it's not very great camera technology because they just don't – they're not really well outfitted for that sort of thing in the plane, jets, at least at that time. And uh, it, it is – whatever's moving is clearly moving with a way that you couldn't imagine a propulsion airplane moving. Um, but the part about them jamming the radars, uh, and then uh, I believe it was him or another person in the squadron also talked about at one point they disappeared and they were at the rally point. It was like they knew where they were going to go. So it, it was fascinating technology and uh, inexplicable by which the highest. So one of the questions you would have is if we're doing this, if we're if we've created technology that that is just top secret and we don't want anybody to know about it, and that's what this is, how would the best pilots in the world not even have a 
a comprehension that it exists. Um, and most of your best physicists, I've, I've heard a couple of physicists say, you know, I know the five or 10 people that you'd have in on a project like this. And unless they're really good at keeping secrets and, and leading a double life, because I know what they're involved in and it's not this, uh, that would be pretty tough to explain as well. So I think we're dealing with alien technology, whether they're manned or unmanned. The other thing we have to think of is uh, objects like that. We're just getting to mastery of drones. We'd have to, we'd have to think that anybody that could travel across the universe would be able to do an unmanned flight in a way that we couldn't conceive of as well. Maybe some of these are remote control and they're looking on a video, you know, in a different galaxy. We've been speaking. Fascinating with, idea. We've been speaking with Dennis Mitch Maley. He's the editor of the BradentonTimes.com. <laughs> It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. And I'm Mark Edge. And it seems like the UFO story and hearings is the story that just keeps on giving, even more than the other stories that keep on giving. We just finished talking with Dennis Maley, thought we had covered the subject, beat those aliens dead like an old horse. And I, I've got to quit mixing my metaphors, Mark. I love mixed metaphors. Yes. Uh, As soon as we get Dennis off the air and I turn to look at my computer, we have news stories, new news stories about what else came out in those hearings. But these were documents that the reporters and news services that were covering it, these people didn't testify in public they provided written documentation or written opinions or written uh, testimony. Let me just read the headline to you. And UFOs once took control of Russian ICBMs nearly caused World War III. Now that's a headline to get your attention. I, it's got my attention. Uh, it it, it, it sounds like something off the weekly world news. Oh, those used to be in the Weekly World News. Now they're on <laughs> Fox News, and this particular version of it is in the Jerusalem Post because hmm. I didn't want to use just Fox News, even though they sourced it mostly from Fox News. Because, uh, yeah. you know, the, the Fox News has a reputation. It'd be like if I put it from MSNBC, and, you know, you had to get this, or really any of those. I figured Jerusalem Post, you know, they, they have a reputation and they're not reporting about something in Israel. They didn't say, it's not like they said that the aliens took over Israeli ICBMs or <laughs> nuclear bombs. So, all right. So here's some of the details. Russian fighter jets once fired at possible extraterrestrial life forms after a pair of UFOs nearly caused World War III to break out. Testimony was given by George Knapp, an award-winning Las Vegas-based journalist who has repeatedly reported on UFOs, now known as UAPs, as we've 
covered that. Now, first of all, George Knapp, I, it doesn't say what awards he's won, but the fact that he's in Las Vegas and he's in the Nevada, he is known to be friends with Harry Reid. Harry Reid, has Harry Reid passed yet? I don't think so. Well, anyway, when, when Harry Reid was more influential than today, uh, George Knapp was his friend. And if his Harry Reid is still around, he still is his friend, by all the reports. And But we know that Harry Reid also had an interest in UFOs or UAPs or you know flying saucers or whatever. Anyway, according to Knapp, there was a time when the Russian military actually deployed fighter jets to fire on UFOs following incidents that nearly pushed the world into a nuclear war. Now, Knapp said that he had uh, gotten these documents from confidential sources in Russia mm. and managed to release them. And you now it's not going to help the radio audience, but I did in the, if, in the two links that I sent you, one of them actually has the links to the letter from George Knapp if you feel so inclined to read multiple pages of fine print about this incident. But, and if, and if something had I think I, I think I want the high points. Yeah. <laughs> I like the part where they fire on a UFO. I like that part. Russians had carried out what might have been the largest ever UFO investigation in history, spanning a decade. Well, we, we've already just heard that we've been doing it for multiple decades. Yeah, we're and, America. We can do it better and faster. An entire breadth of the Russian military echelon. So that's why they couldn't study Ukraine enough to know what they were in for when they crossed the border there. They're chasing things well beyond that. <laughs> Knapp said he had spoken with a Russian military official, Colonel Boris Sokolov. So That sounds you know, legit. <laughs> yeah, that sounds Russian. It sure does. Uh, who said that there had been no less than 45 different incidents where Russian fighter jets had clashed with UFOs, with Russian jets crashing in three of these incidents, resulting, resulting in the death of two pilots. Now, we did hear from David Grush uh, in the previous hour saying that he knew of uh, American either contractors or soldiers or, or workers that had been injured in some incidents. And... It makes sense because if they're going to check out our stuff, especially through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you got to go check out Russia. I'd like to know what China has to say about all this. One incident really raised alarm bells, according to some. Well, China's kind of China's risen um, in stature in the last couple of decades, whereas before that they didn't have much. I mean, what were they going to do, throw uh, pitchforks at them? Well, they've been beyond pitchforks for quite a few decades now. They got the, the nuclear bomb by late 40s, early 50s, I thought. Show me the Polaroid. Of what? <laughs> of, of whatever. The 8 millimeter film. Show me whatever they got. Because it certainly isn't digital uh, footage. Okay. I thought you were asking me to show, wanted me to show you the Chinese nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, that's beyond my pay grade at the moment. Uh, what's the reputation of Raisin Edge goes? Who knows what's going to come flying <laughs> through the end of <laughs> Uh, Let's see. So, according to Sokolov, the UFOs, quote, somehow took control of the launch system. Well, that just makes sense to me. You You would think their launch system would be analog. Like, it wouldn't be the kind of thing where you can just war games hack into it and take it over. 
you would think it would be completely analog right. uh, in Russia. I mean, most of our launch stuff, the Minuteman, the, those sorts of things, were analog for a very long time. Force of mind over kinetic energy to move the little potentiometers up and down on those things. If they can travel at super light speed, perhaps they can. UFOs that appeared over the base performed astonishing maneuvers in front of stunned eyewitnesses. <laughs> and needless to say on that, <laughs> then somehow took control of the launch system. The missiles were aimed at the U.S. and were suddenly fired up. I mean, I don't think they were actually fired as in launch. Right, they were warmed up. They started the process. You know, in the Russian technical system of nuclear war, launch is launch. Fired up means hang on, buckle your seatbelts, we're in for a bumpy ride. Launch control codes were somehow entered. And the base was unable to stop what could have initiated World War III. Then, just as suddenly, the UFOs disappeared and the launch control system shut down. What do you suppose this was? Was this like a message that the the aliens are sending the Russians? Hey, stop trying to shoot down our our ships or what? Maybe it was just a test. Maybe, maybe, Maybe it was teenage aliens just having a little fun. (laughs) <laughs> they got their their super duper universal remote control like it controls your your cable and your well if you had cable controls all your different entertainment systems and they were playing around with it and then just as suddenly it shut down the the the, the mom and dad's vehicle got out of range that happened we the- very fast you know we are the very best people to be talking about this, Henry, because, uh, you know, the, the decades and decades of research in uh, comic books and science fiction and these sorts of things, we, we know all the ins and outs. This is a story that I'm about to tell you that is related, but I have never recounted in 15 years on the radio. So in elementary school, a friend of mine was really into UFO stories and things like that. So we're talking... Maybe 10-year-old Henry. I don't think I was 12-year-old because I had better things to do by the time I was 12. And so this is the mid-70s, early 70s. Uh, no, 60s. Okay. And I had a, a Starship Enterprise model. But what I had done, you know, the bridge, the circular part, I took that off. And speaking of Polaroids, I actually used a Polaroid camera on this. The Instamatic Polaroid cameras, black and white. Uh-huh. Black and white work, work much better. So you got the white Star Trek Enterprise deck. You know, not the, the engines or anything showing. And I took a, a thin string and suspended it from my swing set. Yeah. And then I shot horizontally the, the Polaroid and captured the flying saucer as it went by visually as it seemed to go by my, cause we didn't have VHS cameras. That was t- still two decades. No, no. The yeah. Polaroid was the peak of technology yeah. at the time you're talking about yeah, in 1967. No time. And I got that picture and there was that flying saucer flying between my swings. And, you know, it was, it was, I didn't know the word drone back then. But I would, if I did, I would have said it was an exploratory drone that was flying in my backyard because they knew in their foresight that they should check me out. <laughs> and my, my, my friend comes over and he looks at that picture. 
what are we going to do? <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't know. I gave him what my you And he goes, we got to let people know. it." I said, no, no, Mark. It was a different Mark. Mark, yep. you didn't even exist at the time of this poll. No. Uh, I think we just want to take a step back on this. You know, nobody's going to believe. Anyway, I did not go like these other people saying, oh, nuclear war is about to happen. Of course, we had that anyway, just down Cuba with what was going on there. Um, anyway, there was another a testimony from Jeremy Corbell. This again was written. Uh, he was another investigative journalist and talks about that uh, it, they've proven, the UAPs have proven they can operate with the impunity in our airspace. Uh, occurred almost every day, often within restricted airspace. And UAPs have witnessed, documented I don't know how he knows they documented our witness document unless he was taken up with him. Maybe doesn't Jeremy oh, need to lose. Does he mean the government documented? Uh, UAP are witness documented and often captured. But yes. I guess that's them, them being documented, not documenting us. I was misreading that. Thank you for cor- correcting that Mark. Okay. I would hate to think that, there's well, a bad file of me on the Andromeda galaxy or something. I don't want to. I want to make sure that uh, there's just nothing um, misunderstood about this story. I mean, it's, and, and it's already crazy as hell. We are <laughs> we are precise in our language here at Rains and Ed. <laughs> uh, let's see. Anyway, he goes on to say they're basically they can just destroy us whenever they want. That's what Jeremy says, uh, and, and I. It's. I understand. I think I understand why they didn't want him testifying on uh, on the public testimony. You can just just write it up for us. <laughs> A little to Kathy over there, and and Josh will uh, will help you figure out the proper uh, way to submit this. Hmm. It's certainly a little bombastic, um, but you know I. I wonder why they're releasing all this UFO information now. Right. Like um, the thing that is I I always wonder when you really the juicy stories come out, you know, they've been holding this one for a while. Uh, (laughs) um, So what is it that's going on that they're trying to distract from? Um, I don't trust these people, as you know, I uh, very little trust for anybody calling them the politicians. I the the aliens, I have a significantly uh, larger trust for. (laughs) And I wonder what they're trying, like, well, you know, hey, this alien stuff's very interesting. Can you release those Epstein files for us? You know, like, those are the kind of things that I'm I'm wondering about. Well, what makes you trust the aliens more? Um, I figure if you have developed the kind of technology that allows you to travel from many, many, many light years away to the Earth. Or other dimensions, that, even. Yep. That and my supposition is is that you have figured out morality and how it works. Um, to my mind, the state and the involuntary actions, the violence that it perpetrates, is a holdover from a time when people uh, enslaved each other, and that we are uh, evolving out of that. Like the arc of history bends towards freedom. Well, in my opinion, it's bending towards freedom, and. The alien's arc of history, just a guess, has probably already bent uh, towards freedom. They probably don't understand things like lies. 
Oh, well, that's a nice way of thinking about things. If they want to blow us up, we we wouldn't have a moment's warning. No, they they would want some. They must want something from us. I, that, that if if there's aliens, and if they're coming, they want something. And what is that thing? And the only thing I can come up with is, I like to see animals in their natural environment. I like to see them doing the things that they do. For the giant theme park next to three three planets from the sun. Yeah, yep. Uh, wild Country Safari. That's how I see it anyway. I just would suggest that it seems like everything in nature... Survival of the fittest. They, That's the other end of it. Why, why and, would that make them kinder or gentler? Um, because they either made it past nuclear power or they didn't. Um, and there's the jury's still out as to whether or not we're going to make it. So they're the kind of civilization that makes it past their factions, presuming they have factions, Um having nuclear power, nuclear weapons. Okay. Well, I project our base nature on all, all beings and things except nice, fuzzy little animals. <laughs> and, that's, it, and that's what all you can do, right? Like, it's hard to, to, to imagine what an alien looks like is what uh, has been confronted by so many authors and illustrators throughout the years. Um, like, what does this alien look like? And all we can do is take the things that we have and transpose them. I mean, it seems really odd and convenient that uh, aliens now are always humanoid. I mean, either they seeded the planet and we are, in fact, a some kind of uh, derivative of whatever their DNA is. That's a possibility. Or it's a darned interesting coincidence that they've got a head in the place that we've got a head and shoulders in the place we've got shoulders and arms in the place we've got arms and legs in the place that we have legs and a trunk to go in the middle. Um, you know, maybe so we... That, maybe that's just one group of aliens. There might be just like big amoebas. That, well, that's what I'm thinking. That is, is that, that But... That's the point is, is that you have to reference things that you know in order to create the alien, right? Like, is you can go wild with your mind and say, what religion is created? (laughs) Indeed, right? Um, They tried to created us in his image or her image. And so your seems, every time I read stuff, it seems more like we created God in our image. Or we describe, let me, let me say we describe, because I don't, I, I I don't want to, uh, I'm not an atheist, so and I'm about as close to a Christian as I can be. But I would say that our description seems like we're describing God in our image with the throne and all those things that were really symbols of power back 2,000 years ago. When I went uh, to Bradenton Christian School in Bradenton, Florida, a teacher explained it to me, is, is that um, words had to be used to explain to us this fantastic place um, in order to understand it. What's that? Fantastic place. What is? What about it? 
Sarasota. I have time. <laughs> yeah, no. A little local um, there. Yeah. For those that don't know, uh, Bradenton is the Rio Linda of uh, the Tampa Bay area. We're on. So, yeah, I don't know what uh, to make of all of this. Let me follow this up. So, it was a male teacher or female teacher? That was a female teacher, but uh, we had both. And, and, And so, they had to use words that we could understand. Sure. To describe the fantastic. Right. Was that a sanctioned theology by that school? That doesn't sound like... To my mind, there wasn't much of a th- sanctioned theology. And uh, frankly, I don't find... That, uh, that was Protestants many decades ago, but I, right. I was friends with the middle school Bible teacher there. And I don't remember. Who? Well, not not when you were there. Recently, okay. Like, like in the last right. 10 years. Um, All right. And I don't remember that being her point of view on the Bible. Well, I mean, people have lots of questions that the Bible doesn't answer because it's a 2,000-year-old, it's, it's, a, it's a guidebook for a 2,000-year-old religion, and we have different interests and concerns today. Um, so, for instance, the Christians would love to know what Jesus thought about cross-dressing people, but we don't really have that information. And, um, you know, for instance, where do our pets so they go when they die? The person that wore the ankle-length robes thought about dressing like the opposite gender that wore ankle-length robes? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Um, Jesus likely had short hair, but is always depicted with long hair. How would that uh, first-century Sephardic Jew feel about being portrayed with... I um, grew their hair out long. Some well, it's possible. their creed and stuff. It, it, perhaps it is, right? Like, that's another possibility. No, it was. But That's why the, the Nazarenes are known for the... Their, but I, a Nazarene is a sect. Is, it was a, a, a behavior they did. They were supposed to... They, uh, Mark, you, did, you threw this on me with no show prep. Yep, I read course. about the Nazarene behavior, and they, they had a unique way of expressing their their religion back in the day. Of course, they weren't Christians at that time because they've blown through our time, Mark. <laughs> we should do some show prep next segment. Yeah, I should keep my eye on the timer when we get all excited. Let's <laughs> think to Reigns and Ed right here on the Free Talk Live Network. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete. So it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. Thank you. 
It's Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. And it's our final segment for today. I'm Henry Reigns. I'm Mark Edge. Yes, you are. And yes, I am. We prove that every segment. Oh. <laughs> well, we've That'll covered a lot me. of ground. And one ground we haven't covered is the ground that Hunter Biden walks on. And he's still riding. He's still mobile. He's still free to go wherever he wants. Uh, the plea deal has been put on the shelf. I don't think it's actually um, going to go away. I think something will be modified and we'll, we'll get something similar. But, you know, it's good to show people that you can't just walk in with a plea deal and just walk out when everybody's saying, hey, how'd you do that? But... And more interestingly is how do you get millions of dollars from Chinese or Ukrainians or assorted ethnic and national groups from around the world? Well, well I don't think that's an interesting question, but I think the plea deals are also very interesting. I, I wonder to myself in many cases how the people of the United States or whatever circuit or district or state that we're talking about – in any given circumstance, how they're served by plea deals. It seems like a plea deal is a deal between a criminal, because that's what they make everybody, right? And bureaucrats. And we pay the bureaucrats to work, and they're not. And we want criminals punished, at least to some level, in order to teach them and society as a whole, that uh, crime doesn't pay. I remember hearing that. What's that? A deterrence. Yeah, you want uh, this deterrence. You don't want people to just be able to get away with things. Now, in my opinion, the United States, uh, we just, you know, we throw sentences around. Like, uh, you know, toss somebody in prison for 10 years, and that's ridiculous. I mean, I think that in many cases, if you're going to teach somebody a lesson, you can teach them in two years what you could teach them in 10 now, I'd certainly say there's some percentage of the population you can't teach at all. And how do you handle that? Um, you know, these are what, different what questions. Are, what are you able to teach them in two years? Um, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people who not go cal- to prison. What's that? Not calculus. <laughs> well, that's not the goal. That's not the point. Not calculus is not the, uh, not the level. Behavior. Where- you can change their behavior or change their values that- about their behavior. I think that just the understanding that you're probably not going to get away with it. Like this is my theory right now is committing a crime. And I'm not talking about the myriad of things that the liars and thieves and the various capitals have written down. I'm talking about an actual thing with an actual victim. You know, the stuff you think of when you think of crime, robberies, uh, you know, murders, uh, violence, these kind of things is going to be very difficult to get away with these days. You're carrying a tracking device around in your pocket. And cameras everywhere. Cameras are everywhere. And I think that this is one of the reasons that crimes are just harder to commit these days. Now, you could be out in California where you can just steal whatever you want, apparently, and nobody's going to do anything about it. But, um, you know, by and large, in most of uh, America, you're not going to get away with it. But haven't you just stated the, the problem that there is? You say you want these people to work. But the fact is, there aren't enough of them to bring the to do the judicial part to 
to hold the trials, to try them for defense and prosecution. So that's why they cut the plea deal. I think that moving uh, through the pipeline. Right. So you're saying the, the asking the question whether we should hire more bureaucrats to do it or whether um, if, if a yeah. government says they're going to do a thing. Here's what my theory is. My theory is, is that 80 percent, eight zero percent of crimes that uh, we run people through the system for are pointless crimes that benefit the bureaucracy, the Byzantine apparatus that has become the state, that the vast majority of places around the world don't have as nearly as many convictions and don't have a, a, you know, a stunningly more crime. If you look at Canada, Canada is convicting far fewer people. It has a, a very similar uh, ethnic mix, and somehow that it isn't some chaotic uh, hellhole. So why is that? Um, hey, I, they look very much like us. It looks like they were made in our image. I think we need to figure out a way to integrate certain ethnic groups into the population um, in order to not continue to have the disenfranchised behavior that we currently have. All right. Well, talking about behavior we don't want to have. <laughs> bring us right back. Hunter to Biden yeah. is the poster child for behavior we don't want to have. Uh, well, there was this uh, hearing, let's see, it was from the, you know, it's funny, the House Oversight Chairman got to talk about Hunter Biden and UFOs in the same two-week period. <laughs> and so do we. And by sheer coincidence, Hunter Biden knows a few things about UFOs, or at least he's seen a few UFOs. Uh, unidentified effing objects, yes. Uh, uh, Representative Andy Biggs, Republican of Arizona, acknowledged that Republicans witness in their probe of the Biden's family business dealings, quote, didn't know anything about unverified allegations that President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden had accepted millions of bribes. So lots to unpack there. First of all, Representative Andy Biggs is a Republican from Arizona. Uh, second of all, the I like the way they talked about the unverified allegations and then said had accepted that President Joe Biden had accepted millions in bribes as well as his son Hunter. Uh, we'll come back to that. Let me get the details out of this on what people said that participate in it. Um, Devin Archer was the Biden business partner, Hunter Biden's business partner, uh, and part of the growing uh, probe and the testimony. Archer, during the nearly five-hour testimony, said that President Biden was not party to any of his son's business deals and that Hunter had merely tried to sell the illusion that he was providing access to his father. Democrats on the panel said, according to New York Times, I'm sure that was an unbiased opinion. Archer right. I mean, said, if, I guess if I was uh, thinking about this and it was uh, Donald Trump and his uh, daughter or son, um, that the Democrats would be making the same sort of hay as the Republicans are now. Well, right? they already do the whataboutism about, about Trump and uh, Ivanka and Jared. And actually, Ivanka and Jared deal with even bigger numbers with what the Saudis. But at least they open hotels and people can sleep in them. I mean, as opposed to selling BS that doesn't exist, vaporware. Well, I, I, I don't accept your premise there. Um, okay. Hunter was selling influence. 
No, that's, yes. You want to call that vaporware. That vaporware is something all totally different. Well, some per, uh, Hunter, the claim is here that Hunter was selling influence, or at least the suggestion is, is Hunter selling influence and he didn't get the, and that he did not deliver that influence. So yes, vaporware. No, vaporware is a real thing. Vape, uh, my understanding is vaporware doesn't exist. It is vapor. No. Wait, all right. Darn it, Mark. First I had to go find out why the Nazarites don't cut their hair. And now I've got to look up the darn definition of vaporware just to say, uh-huh. Oh, Mark. Vaporware. All right. Software or hardware that have been advertised but is not yet available to buy, either because it is only a concept or because it is still being written or designed. So it's in it's software and development. That's a whole different thing than influence peddling. Well, you you are to presume that it is software and development. It, that's um, one the, that's one of the things it can be. It can be just a bunch of BS. Yes, which is what the suggestion is. Is this is right? like the same way that influence peddling can be BS, or it can really have influence. I, I will concede that influence peddling is a better term than vaporware in this circumstance. I just like to play with the language. Yeah. So, um, you know, the the question is whether or not Hunter Biden was in fact selling uh, influence or whether he was well, um, just attempting to sell influence. We've got a lot to say about that. So let's just get through what uh, Devin Archer said, and then we can do our own talking. Okay. Devin De- or Devon? What was the Elton John song? You, Devon? Um, yeah, I think so. Something Devon. Yeah. Uh, well, you've dug your own hole here. Don't expect me to climb in it with you. Yeah. So anyway, he, Archer also said President Biden met and spoke with his son's international business associates several times as Hunter Biden tried to boost his business, but did not discuss any business. He said Hunter Biden put his father on speakerphone to talk to business partners about twenty times over a decade which by my math says twice a year, uh, members of the panel told the Times. Uh, Comer, that was the chair of the panel, said that Archer testified that President Biden was put on the phone to sell the family brand. See, that's where that's why we need to speak so precisely, Mark. To sell the family brand, well, Biden didn't do any selling. He represented the family. Uh, I'm talking about Joe Biden now. You know, uh-huh. He didn't have to say, oh, did you know I'm the vice president of the United States? He doesn't have to. say, hi, I'm Joe Biden. Yep. All right. David Archer's testimony. And I hear you're doing business with my son. I wonder what it is. No, he did not say that. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) He didn't didn't have to say that, Mark. I I, I will concede that there is no uh, proof that he has said it. Sure. Um, But I guess I'm just from the the country, you know, like when I smell smoke, I expect to find fire. Now, I'm not saying what Hunter Biden did is legal, but you understand that influence peddling is legal. Explain to me the circumstances. I want to a couple quotes, Mark. That's why we blow through all our time zone. There's just a little bit of here and you you're, you're just chasing the shiny object. <laughs> I love shutting objects. Burns. Oh well, that's just James Comer bloviating again. All right, uh, here's where they talk about where they accuse Joe Biden of uh, lying, which I think is sort of a stretch too, uh, at least on parts of this. Uh, Arch's testimony 
uh, underscore, Biden falsely claimed during the 2020 campaign that no one in his family received money from China, even though Hunter and his business partners received millions from a Chinese firm. So you're, he's splitting hairs there. Biden says, Joe Biden says that nobody from my family received. They paid a company. That's just legal business. Okay. So chasing that, I think, is sort of a fruitless goal because that is, you're still within the legal system. You're in the legal influence peddling that you, this country allows. Uh, Archer was unequivocal and stated very clearly they never discussed any business. This is another Democrat saying. So here's what all this says. Oh, well, I should give this to, to the Bidens too. This was uh, in the time period after Bo died in 2015, and Joe Biden called his son frequently to check on uh, him and how he was doing in this period of time, according to Devin Archer. Um, he was keeping himself, uh, uh, you know, assuaged with crack. Well, that was 2016. That says he okay. fell deeper into his uh, relapse into all this stuff. Okay, let, let's quit playing around with this. In this country, influence peddling is legal at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. But you have to do it within certain rules. Yep. Now, Hunter Biden had did have a business partner in John Kerry's stepson. John Kerry's stepson, also uh, the son of John Kerry's wife, uh, yeah, the, the Heinz lady. Yes, the heir, to, uh, the widow that's the heir to the Heinz fortune. Uh, so that young man had a pretty was born into a pretty comfortable situation. And talk about having a name that opens doors, both with the Heinz fortune and your John Kerry stepson. And you want to sell your business knowledge, your acumen to businesses around the world you got a pretty good chance to get in the door, at least to make your pitch. If you're the son of the vice president, you got a pretty good chance of that, too. In fact, if you're the son of a senator from Delaware, you got a pretty good job, chance of that, as Hunter Biden found out when he went to work for whatever bank that was, because the banking center Delaware, favorable banking laws there, he worked for them. Uh, had Joe Biden's brother, Got some favorable bank loans when Joe Biden was just a county commissioner. So I'm proud. Imagine if you were to look around Manatee. I'm smelling some more smoke here, Henry. Lots of smoke. Yes, because that's the way it works. And (laughs) that's why I feel that Joe Biden, well, I would suspect that after this many decades in public office, Joe Biden knows how to tiptoe up to a line and not cross it. Like John Kerry's stepson. Well, I mean, that's, that, that goes hand in hand with the belief. There's no line, right? Like you're not actually looking at a line. Drop the the, the carry kid. Yeah. So, uh, please. All right. So he and Hunter Biden are in business together. But Hunter Biden accepts the position on the board of Burisma, the uh, energy company in Ukraine, and. Uh, John Kerry's stepson says, that's a bridge too far for me. I do not want to be associated with that. This We have no knowledge of this. We can't make the case that we're adding anything to their knowledge. It looks like we're just trading off her name. I am out. 
and Hunter Biden's like, okay, what? Well, I got a sweet gig here. Right. And so Hunter, the curious kid, the one that isn't the, the crazy drug addict knows how to pull back from the line. Hunter Biden just shoots right across it and starts this whole thing. So what I say to you and to the audience is that we, Hunter Biden was an out of control drug addict. And there's probably lots of stuff that he did that, well, we know there's lots of stuff he did that broke laws, but he was probably out there saying whatever he had to. And I don't think Joe Biden would have done anything beyond saying, Hey, I'm Joe Biden. Nice to meet you. How's the weather out there? And, and just made his presence felt. And that's how this stuff happens all around the world in the country. So I, I get it. That is what happens. And that's the problem, right? Like we keep on giving power oh, to these liars and thieves. Um, but I think that the American people deserve, and, you know, if we're going to have somebody rule over us, it ought to be somebody who makes an effort to look unimpeachable. I'm not claiming the Republicans have provided that to us. In fact, I would uh, claim the contrary. Um, I would claim that this is how it is done, just like you, and that it is, but that it is unacceptable. I say that it's totally acceptable. I have, okay, well, you may defend that point. Well, I will, but not like Hunter Biden does it. So, <laughs> say, say you've spent 20 years working in uh, something like um, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. Okay. That's our actual ac acronym or not. But yep. you know the rivers around Florida. You, you worked hard at that. People know you. They know your credibility. And you, you come out of the, the – you've done your 20 years. You get your retirement out of the state pension plan. You're still middle-aged, and you want to go to work. If and you decide, and you go I'm going to sell my knowledge that I've accumulated, um, you know, through uh, hard work inside the state, putting up with uh, all the That's crap that goes. One component. They also know when they hire you that people will answer your phone call and respond to your emails. That's influence peddling. I agree. That's exactly right. And you also, really importantly, know how to navigate the morass of bureaucracy. And you're going um, to you make know, things operate more efficiently. You can conduct influence peddling ethically. Yep. Don't I would say that, that that's true. Sure. I'm glad you agree. If we're going to live, if we're going to live in a world with a uh, bureaucratic uh, nightmare of a government, then you're going to need people to help you get through it. Nothing wrong with hiring them. Well, you what you call a bureaucratic nightmare, I call clean wetlands. I don't know whether that's true. Um, I mean, do we really have clean wetlands? It seems like people are just throwing boa constrictors and Oscar fish and uh, iguanas out there I'm and talking uh, about the excesses. What's we, that? We can't I mean, pay. There's red tide blooms every year. That's coming from fertilizer. And that's coming from people who have hired, uh, you know, people who formerly worked for this Florida EPA that you're um, talking about. I mean, no, it's not. It, it's not so solving the problem. We have solved problems. But we've, I'm did, sure that's true. But we've relapsed, too. When Tampa Bay... Uh, was almost a dead bay 
in the 60s. And in the 70s, we had the Tampa Bay Estuary Act. That's for those around the world or around the U.S. You know, I know in the U.S. geography, we have to learn by going to war. But if you know where uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Tampa Bay Lightning are, that little finger that sticks into the Gulf of Mexico on the left side of Florida, that's where Tampa Bay is. It was dead. It's the other Bay Area. We had... (laughs) Uh, a gray film that was hung around over Tampa Bay in the 60s. We had a split government uh, between Republicans and Democrats that actually were trying to compete to do something right in the state of Florida. And Senator Pat Neal helped co-sponsor the Tampa Bay Estuaries Act, which was the beginning of the process that cleaned up Tampa Bay and restored a lot of the sea life, at least through the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. And that same person is now one of the biggest developers in the state of Florida, causing the same runoff that you now blame, and rightly so, for the algae blooms and the red tide. So the good guy of the 70s becomes the bad guy later. Things change. But there was a moment in time where we had progress in this state. I no doubt a broken clock can strike tw- uh, right well, twice a, a day. It was a working clock. The clock broke later. Well, when we became it, it a was, party state. Okay, so your claim is is that purple states work better than um, red states or blue states? Uh, I, my claim is that when the two factions are competing for the approval of the electorate on substance, the, the electorate gets better results. Yeah, I would, I would uh, tend to agree that that's the case, yeah. Um, that the government, when uh, forced to compete, is at its best. True. And we've also had in this state, and I imagine if we looked at California or some of the other one-party states would find the same thing, we've had 20 years of working the system to uh, finagle and, in the case of reforms, find a way to, to keep people from voting in the, and I'm not talking about ethnically, that's a whole separate issue, but just keep the, the vote uh, small and tight and a narrow electorate making the choices. Indeed. Um, you know, it's, I, there's no doubt that it's one of the strategies of the Republican Party to limit the amount of people that vote. Um, I, too, believe that if you have – like I would, I would limit it differently. I would limit it on something more fair, uh, but uh, that's, that's part of the strategy. I mean – Well, in, in Florida was a one-party state under the Democrats pretty much after Reconstruction up until the 1960s. Right. And then that's why you couldn't overturn – segregation and Jim Crow until they weren't going to let that happen until it, it got competitive on the vote. It wasn't until was the decisions that caused people uh, to make changes in their behavior too. Right. It was the Mark, uh, Southern strategy. Time. What are we going to do next week? <laughs> We're going to talk about the week, the news, the week? About everything. I think we actually have done four shows now. Yeah, this is our fourth show. Yeah, I was looking in the archives there. And uh, 
So I, I don't know what we're, we, we must have talked about everything in the world by now. <laughs> no, there's new things will happen. They'll be outrageous too. Well, and you'll, we'll, we'll have, a I hope it's as something as fun as UFOs though. Um, I hope it's something as fun as UFOs because that was really awesome. All right. Well, I will be on the lookout for that. We'll have three hours of pickleball discussion. (laughs) We're both fans. To everybody for listening to Reigns at Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.